Good morning, Evergreen. If you'll open up your Bibles with me and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're really beginning our jog through Genesis. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And this is the story of Cain and Abel, a tale of two sons. I don't know how much introduction this truly needs. We'll see. We'll let the passage speak for itself this morning. This is Genesis chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. From the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive. And a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away today, away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then the Lord went away from the presence, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis contains a powerful sense of direction. They start in the garden, 
And once the fall happens, constantly people are moving east of Eden. The sad reality is, is that once sin has been brought into the world, corruption works its way into absolutely every facet of ourselves and also of God's creation. And it goes from bad to worse. Probably a lot quicker than we were expecting. Or at least maybe if this is the first time hearing it, then you'd be expecting. That we go from one generation of disobedience to God's command of eating a fruit of a tree to the very next generation, to the very first two people seeing murder being committed. As we go through Genesis, really, up until Genesis 11, we're going to continue to see the effects of sin on humanity in particular. But in our text, you know, there's something really striking about this. This story of Cain and Abel. This is the only really snapshot of what we see of life between the fall and the flood. The next two weeks of sermons, we're going to be going through genealogies, which is more fun than I think maybe you could be expecting at the moment in saying that. But just realize that after this story of Cain and Abel, what we're getting to is a genealogy, a list of people who lived and died. The sons of Cain and the sons of Seth. Leading up till Noah, when we see the state of the world right before the flood comes. What we see is a snapshot of humanity. We know that Cain has a wife that he will eventually have children with, but we never hear any record of his marriage or the ceremony of it. We know that Eve is called the mother of all the living, and she was during this time having lots and lots of children who we don't read of in this story. Instead, what God gives us is a snapshot of human history that really defines the way the world is after the fall. And it's the way it, God said it would be. God said in Genesis 3.15 that I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. In particular, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's hostility between a general group of people, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan, even though Satan doesn't have literal reproduced offspring. And in particular, we'll see that conflict come to a highlight with the seed, Jesus Christ, versus the seed, or the serpent, Satan himself. What we see inserted in humanity is really a dividing line. That God created in humanity a dividing line, a binary between male and female. And every human being falls in one of those two physical categories. And it has lots of implications for how we live. But there's another category a spiritual category which people find themselves in, which is also a binary. 
we are either, and this refers to every human being, either we are a seed of the woman in the Genesis language or a seed of the serpent. A child of God or a child of Satan. A people heading towards heaven or heading towards hell. These are the two options that we are told that people find themselves in. And as we go through and we see these dividing lines, we see that this dividing line is between faith, those who have faith, and those who do not, unbelief. We see the dividing line is evidenced, that faith is evidenced in either hate or love, and that dividing line goes even to the sentencing, whether you're on the receiving end, God's justice is for you or against you. And this is the uncomfortable part. Is that we are called, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, to make our calling and election sure. We're called to examine ourselves to see if we're Christians or not. And what God's word gives us here is a direction for how we can know we're a child of God. How we can have assurance. Part of the discomfort comes from our hesitancy at receiving judgment from others. We don't like the scriptures judging us and our lifestyle, and we get really embarrassed and tender about receiving judgment from other people. We do have to be careful that we judge according to God's word, but that doesn't mean that we avoid all judgment. We can't. Because there's categories for our actions, for our thoughts, our words, our deeds. They're either right according to God's word or they're wrong. And we don't do ourselves a favor by ignoring those categories, by putting it off until later. If we have breath in our lungs, God has been gracious towards us. He's shown his kindness towards us. And today is the day to turn from our sins and to turn to Christ. And just as we need to recognize that call in our lives, we need to love other people enough to point that out to them as well. And it's an interesting category, isn't it? This dividing line between faith and unbelief. It's something that we know is a difference between Abel and Cain. And we know it, if anything, we know it from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. That tells us something that maybe in reading this passage you would have skimmed over. Which is Abel being a model, a, a illustration of how in the past all the fathers of old were saved by faith alone. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says that by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. 
How do we know that Abel was commended by God? Well, because his gifts were accepted by God. What is it about Cain's gifts that was not acceptable versus Abel's that was? See, we see the evidence of the faith that the book of Hebrews point, pointed out to us in our text. Abel, or rather Cain, it says, offered the fruit of the ground, just some of the fruit, but Abel also brought to worship, and he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, fat might not sound very great to you, but fat was another word for the best. Genesis 45, verse 18. When they're thankful that they've received from Egypt the best of the land, it's called the fat of the land. What is Abel doing? Where do we see evidence of his faith? Well, first of all, we need to recognize this in the context of worship. That it's in the context of worship that Abel's faith is expressed. And then the evidence in particular is what he brings, which is his best. And we know that it's by faith, for we, Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, that without faith it is impossible to please God. This is a very important distinction to make. Good works, whether in worship or following any of God's moral code, our good works are not what makes us acceptable in God's sight. Our good works are simply the evidence and byproducts of our faith. It's important to distinguish because if we are trying to figure out where do we fall on this dividing line, are we children of Abel or are we children of Cain? The important distinction is faith. But that faith that we have is accompanied by evidence, which we would be dull to not examine. This is where the book of James is coming from in James chapter 2, verse 17, that says faith without works is dead. Why does he say this? Well, because he's showing in the very next verse, in James chapter 2, verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We all know this. How do you know what someone truly believes? Don't actions speak louder than words? Our hope is not in our action because we know as sinners, we sin. Our actions all have a taint somewhere or another in some aspect. So if we're looking for assurance and to see which line we fall under, 
by looking at just our works, we're just trusting in ourselves. That's just another way of doing that. But we need to be honest with ourselves to say that faith produces action. In reality, we actually see our faith by our works. I might tell you, and it's easy to say, I trust in God, not my bank account. But how do you know that's true? It's really easy for me to say. Anyone in this room can simply utter those words. That faith is shown and proved to be true when you don't have anything in the bank account. When you're forced in your reliance upon God to trust in Him. And what James says is, you know what? You show me your faith apart from your works. You tell me that you believe, while when your bank account runs to zero, you start fretting, worrying, and never turning to God in prayer. You know what I will do? I'm going to say that I have faith, and I'm going to show it to you by my works. And I think we would be doing ourselves a disfavor if we just glossed over what the context of this faith is. The context of this faith is worship. This dividing line between inhumanity starts off with a distinction between their relationship with God and then we see that it also there's a dividing line in how they treat others. But it starts off with how they treat God. And if we are getting confused about worship, and if sometimes, sometimes we come to worship for a variety of reasons, don't we? Sometimes it's because our parents brought us. Sometimes it's because it's just our habit and routine. But what is here essential is not whether the worship is pleasing to Abel. The important distinction is not whether the worship is pleasing to Cain. The point of worship is what is pleasing to God. And it's an amazing thing, amazing truth that we're told that Christians in the New Testament, that we still are concerned about worship. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 that we are to worship God with reverence and awe for He is an all-consuming fire. Our God has not changed. Our God is the same and actually the purpose of our worship is the same. We have a consideration of what is edifying to the believer. That's a part of our consideration in the structuring of worship. But what we all have to submit to is what is the primary aim of our worship? 
What is the deciding factor in how we worship? What parts we include? What parts we don't? It goes by this principle that we have to first ask ourselves, what is pleasing to God? And what we're told is Abel's worship, a distinction between humanity, is that Abel's worship is pleasing to God, and Cain does not like that, because his worship isn't. And we have demonstrated here another dividing line. And it's really the same thing. What proceeds out of faith but love? What proceeds out of unbelief but hate? This is the natural tendency and inclination of fallen man. And that's the forefront of this text because what we're seeing here is a glimpse of humanity after the fall and things have gotten worse. Cain gets angry and upset. And God asks him in a fatherly way, why are you angry? Don't you know that if you do well, you'll be accepted? This is a call to every sinner, by the way, and we better, it's, we would actually do well to heed it, even if you're a believer. God's word has been placed close to us. We have God's word in our hand. We can read it and we can know what God requires of us, of sinners. Jesus sums it up. What does the Lord your God require of you? What's the chief commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. What is Cain angry about? It's something that we might be able to sympathize with and maybe you felt from time to time. It's found in the insult that we give to some people. Of calling people a goody two-shoes. I don't know if you've said that. This, maybe I'm just imposing my language. Have you ever received disdain for that? Or have you ever disdained someone for that? That you see someone who's doing better than you. And you don't like them for that. You see someone who's living a moral life that you do. And you see in their life choices, things that bring condemnation on you because you're not doing those things and you know it. That it builds an antipathy and a bitterness towards that person. We see this dividing line manifesting itself in exactly what God says. God says in verse 7 that if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That second half of the phrase, its desire is for you and you must rule over it, it's the same exact phrase that we found in the curse on the woman that her desire would be for a husband and he shall rule over you. We see that this battle of the sexes that has been in place by sin and by the curse in humanity actually extends itself between all human relationships. This battle and this conflict 
comes in one of two types. The sin crouching at the door, if we're confused in what that looks like, we actually see that in Cain himself. What does Cain do? Well, that word for crouching is something that a lion does. Have you ever seen your cat hunting for a bird? That he goes down, lies down, puts his chest to the ground, butt up, waiting to pounce, to conquer, to kill? God says, either sin's going to be killing you, or you're going to be killing sin. And we see in Cain that he talks to his brother. He brings him out to the field. He arises against his brother and kills him. 1 Peter 5, 6-10 tells us about be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What we see manifest in the life of Cain is his hatred. Hatred that leads to destruction. The thing he doesn't realize, for some reason or another, is that God is not his enemy. Sin is his enemy. And while he is being utilized for sin to kill Abel, that sin has really conquered him. The wages of sin is death. We see a commentary on this verse that might be lead to, once again to lessons that we wouldn't necessarily come to in our own understanding. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We actually see this divine line, but the opposite focus. In focus, the focus of Genesis chapter 4 is in seeing this dividing line of unbelief producing hatred. 1 John's emphasis and call is that instead those by faith would produce actions of love. But we see the same distinction. Verse 10 of, of 1 John chapter 3 says, By this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this message, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. I wonder how far back he's going to go. Oh, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What are the two takeaways that John has? First, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. 
Is it really that surprising when we see the dynamic of the world and that there's this fundamental dividing line between people who follow God and people who do not? Is it surprising that people who follow in the line of Cain also want to be against us? Also want to kill us? Is it so surprising that the Pharisees seek to put Christ to death after it's pointed out that they are children of the devil and prove it by rejecting Christ? But that's not the only takeaway. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That, we lay, that he, that's talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. That we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The irony is that when God confronted Cain, Cain said, first a lie, I do not know where Abel is. But then he says, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. We are. That's the law of love. The law of love shows care for others, especially our brothers. The law of love does not just extend to not hating, not murdering, but we're told in 1 John 3, it looks like those who have goods of this world supplying for the needy of this world. We see this law of love that is the evidence of true saving faith proceeds not just in evidencing itself in how our relationship is towards God and our good works towards Him, but also is evidence in our good works towards others. I remember reading 1 John for the first time when I was a kid. I don't know exactly when it was, but I struggled a lot with assurance. And I struggled a lot with assurance in part because I didn't need to have assurance at that part, point in my life. I did not really love God, and I did not love His Word... And I really saw that in not really caring for the church or for Christians in particular. I did like studying, though. And I did like learning. And I remember listening to a John MacArthur sermon that, said, that pointed out that the book of 1 John is written so that we might know that we belong to God. And right when I start reading it, it's not just six to seven verses in, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that we read that... There is no light or no darkness in God. 
If we say, verse 6, it, that we have fellowship with him while we are in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, when I was a young child, I needed to confront the honest reality that I did not have the fruit of love for other people or of Christians in particular in my heart. And that evidence spoke against me. And the reason why I was not left in hopelessness is because today is the day of repentance. When we examine ourselves and we see that really, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't see much evidence in our lives of God's grace. That should be our warning sign, God's warning sign, to turn to him. For he forgives sinners. In our faith, we're told in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, that we are to supplement our faith with virtue. And a long list of things that ends with brotherly affection. We cannot so segment the Christian life as to think that we can love God without loving others. And if I've convinced myself at one point in time of that, I, I don't know if you guys have done that as well. The dividing line between Cain and Abel is the dividing line between faith and unbelief. It's a dividing line that evidences itself in either hatred of God, hatred of others, or love for God and love for others. And it's also a dividing line that can be seen from what we receive from God's justice. You see, in verse, starting in verse 9, God is once again asking a question not to acquire information. He's asking him, just like he did Eve and Adam, to provoke a confession of sin. And Cain's response is actually worse than Adam and Eve's. Adam and Eve's response was to shift the blame onto someone else. But still admitting in some sense that that deed is wrong. They just didn't want to bear the responsibility for it. Cain's response is to lie blatantly. I don't know. And then he even adds a rebellious flourish to it. Saying to God, am I my brother's keeper? Is this really my responsibility? At no point do we see remorse in Cain. Instead, what we see is God's justice on display. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Hebrews 11.4 said that while, even though Abel died, yet his faith still speaks. What's it saying? 
It's crying out for justice. This reminds me of what's going to happen in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We see God's people being oppressed by the Egyptians, stuck in their slavery, crying out for God. And God saw them, heard them, and then proceeded to take action. And that's the story of the Exodus. We need to be aware. If we have faith in God, if we are a child of God, you know what assurance we have? That God's justice isn't leveled against us. But rather, all of our suffering that's been inflicted upon us, that God sees it and God cares about it and God's going to do something about it. And he gives Cain exactly what he deserves. And it's almost an increase from what Adam received. Adam received a curse on the ground. And his son, who was following the same career path, was also a farmer. But now Cain does not have any hope of gaining anything from the ground. And when Cain receives God's justice... He doesn't show any remorse. At no point in time does Cain say, I'm sorry, I've murdered my brother. Instead, he complains about the consequences. He doesn't like that God is giving him justice. Even though the justice that God gives him in this life has marks of God's goodness and kindness. God does not kill Cain outright. God even provides a mark, and don't ask me what that mark is, because I don't know, in verse 15, that the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone should find and attack him. God preserved his life and his grace towards him. The line of Cain is going to continue. But we must be careful. Because Romans 2 says that the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. What does God's grace towards him lead Cain to? Sorrow of the consequences of sin, but not over sin itself. Cain, and seeing the actions in the rest of Genesis chapter 4, we see that he never repented. No sign of repentance, at least in the information that's given to us about him. Instead, we're told that he is an example of one who is after, who is a child of Satan, who is of the evil one. What we see here is God's justice is going to come. While justice is delayed till the flood that we'll read about in a couple chapters, God is still concerned about justice. He's still concerned that we love him and love others. 
Titus chapter 2 tells us that the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the dividing line that we're talking about here. And we have to get this right. We want, don't want God's justice. If we were to look honestly at our lives and examine just our good works, though, what sort of calculation are we going to come up with? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And the second half of that verse does not say, but those who've earned eternal life will receive eternal life. The wages of righteousness, of our personal righteousness, is eternal life. No, the second half of Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, we've heard a better word. Hebrews 12 verse 24 tells us, that the blood of Abel is not the word that we've heard. That we've heard instead the blood of Christ, which says, verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 12, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the blood of Abel cries out for justice towards sinners. The problem is, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all sinned against somebody. In the blood of some deed that we've had, even if we haven't committed murder, we've committed something which cries out to God for justice. The reason why the blood of Jesus is a better word is because the blood that Jesus' voice speaks to us is that of forgiveness, of reconciliation for sinners. That we might know that by faith that we've made that transition from a child of Satan to a child of God. And with that, in Christ and in Christ alone, we have the hope of eternal life. Let us pray. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. Lord, we confess. We confess our sins to you. We do not claim to be sinless. And at the same time, we've, we confess that we've lived lives of hypocrisy at times. Lord, I pray that if anyone in this room is living a life of hypocrisy. That they say they have faith, but when they look at all the evidence and all the fruit of their life, that they don't have anything that is showing them, is expression of that faith, pray that you would turn them to you. That they would see that the same faith that believes in Christ 
in the promises of God revealed in the word is the same faith that acts differently depending on the different commands that we read in scripture. But our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in you. Our hope is not that we would receive justice because we confess that what we deserve is your wrath. What we look forward to in our, the object of our hope is that we belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have seen the word that Jesus' blood speaks to sinners. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.